Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Sorry, can you hold that thought while I shut the dog up? Oi. <laughs> Sorry, could you, uh, are you able to remember where you were in that sentence? And I mean, it is extraordinary. Oh, now the dog is got a chewy, squeaky toy. This is just absurd. It's so unprofessional. Hold on a second. Don't worry, don't worry. I've been there with talking politics. Welcome back. Or rather, I should say, please welcome us back. You didn't go anywhere. But we haven't done an episode of Politics on the Couch for months and months. Sorry about that. And thanks for waiting, everyone. And thanks for people sending messages saying they wanted more episodes. There will be more episodes. This is the first of them. Um, The couch is a bit dusty. The host is a bit rusty. There are dogs barking. The internet keeps dropping out. It's frankly not the well-oiled machine. It could be. But luckily, our first guest in this new, is it a new season? What is this? In this new tranche of episodes? Anyway, my guest, a seasoned podcaster, uh, a real pro herself, so she didn't mind about the dogs and the failing internet. She's also one of the country's foremost political scientists. I'm talking about Helen Thompson, Professor of Political Economy at Cambridge University. I'm Raphael Baer, by the way, but you probably knew that. If you're a regular listener to Politics on the Couch, or as regular as our irregular output allows, uh, there's a chance you're a bit of a politics podcasting nerd. And if you're a politics podcasting nerd, you'll also know Helen as co-host of Talking Politics, undoubtedly the second best politics podcast in the UK. Sadly, it has finished its run. They've recorded their Abbey Road, they've moved on to other projects, which is sad for those of us who are fans. But luckily, we persuaded Helen to get back behind the microphone for a prog rock odyssey of political analysis. I'm not sure I can make this musical metaphor work. Um, Let's move on. I spoke to Helen, it was a few weeks ago now, it was just before the French presidential election, uh, which gets a brief mention, Uh, spoiler alert, Macron did win which we're happy about just to be clear um we uh, we spoke about lots of other things Uh, helen's latest book disorder hard times in the 21st century is uh, it has to be said an extraordinary feat of analysis it charts the underlying causes of our geopolitical volatility at the moment uh, with a, a truly formidable breadth of historical, political and economic insight. It's frankly intimidating how she is able to weave together the rise of China, uh, the global leverage of the US dollar, uh, constitutional tensions inherent in the EU, shifting diplomatic alliances that emerge from European reliance on Russian oil and gas exports, uh, the changing character of Western democracy – all in one rolling narrative. As someone who's tried to bring different themes even into a single newspaper column, I can confirm that organising such material with the clarity that Helen achieves is way harder than it looks. Helen's book was published on the very day that Russia invaded Ukraine. Obviously, she hadn't planned it that way. That would be uh, extraordinary and a bit sinister. She didn't do that. But that's how it happened. That's how it worked out. And that also meant she wasn't able to include the war itself in her text, but the book is perfectly timed to fill in the strategic and economic background to help anyone make sense of why it happened, which is one of the reasons, one of the many reasons why we were so glad to have her on the podcast. And naturally, that's where we began our conversation, 
on the question of how Vladimir Putin's war marks a turning point or might mark a turning point in global history. Yeah, this is a hard question in a way. Uh, I mean, I think it is an inflection point. One part of my mind thinks it very strongly. It's the return of war in such a dramatic and brutal way. And for those of us in Europe who weren't living in Ukraine, the Donbass region, before 2022, I don't think we'd really imagined that a war of that kind could happen in Europe just relentless assault of, of cities. The reason why I hesitate is is because in one sense what I'm saying is quite insular because if you were living in Ukraine, obviously the war didn't begin at this point. Although it was focused on the Donbass region, it wasn't something that the rest of the country was indifferent to. Their politics was about that and whether it could be brought to an end on acceptable terms. But I think if you look at it, stepping back from Ukraine itself and look about it as Putin's decision to decide to pursue a war of this kind, it does change the world in quite a profound way. You know, I, I was a, a sort of a Russianist before I was a journalist and spent some time out there and, and always thought I was sort of across Putinism and you know the evolution of, of, of the Russian state under him and the change from the Yeltsin era. But even then, right until the moment of full onslaught, I was among those thinking, well, he won't actually go for the full, you know, 1939 mm. move. He's working his way kind of through that playbook, but it's a 21st century iteration and it'll be a provocation and a nibble at Ukrainian territory or something like that. And I'm interested, well, there's two elements of this. One, I'm interested in the extent to which we were all trying to apply some rational strategic judgments to Russia that simply don't apply, that that, that was just completely the wrong frame. Uh, or And also sort of how much of that confidence, if that's the word I had, was the long tail of the sort of end of history complacency. That Although I like to think I'd shaken that off a long time ago and shook it off in 2016, if not before, actually at some level, we still, we needed the, something on this scale to really teach us that what a historical anomaly that late 90s cold, post-Cold War period was? Again, I think this is a really good question, Raf. And again, I'm torn. On the one side, I want to say that if you made some effort to follow what Putin was doing before, including the ways in which he handled the Ukraine situation in 2014, and then if you look at the way in which he behaved in regard to Syria and the way in which he constructed various alliances in the Middle East, including, you know, managing over the course of the second half of the 2010s to improve Russia's relations with both Saudi Arabia and Iran. I mean, this was a man who looked like he was doing quite tactically astute things, waited for his opponents in some sense to make mistakes, to give him opportunities, and then to take them. So I do think that there's something in the way in which Putin behaviour, I'm not saying what goes on his mind because who knows, I think there's something in the way in which his behaviour's changed that is actually quite hard to get one's head around and isn't the fact that and I was in like you, not seeing this scale of move, it isn't simply a function of our complacency that we didn't see it it's a big turn I think in the way in which he's dealt with these issues as he sees them that confront Russia. I agree certainly that it feels as if for want of a better term, a kind of like a fuse blew somewhere in Putin's mind that, that tipped him from the kind of neo-Soviet statecraft strategic game playing 
authoritarian figure to almost sort of mystic, Slavic, nationalist. It's, it's sort of gone off in a completely different direction that really doesn't subject itself to the sort of rational analysis that, that we, we'd like to apply. And one of the things that, that I really enjoyed about Disorder, about the book, is it sort of eschews getting too caught up in the personalities and the styles of the leaders. And actually, on this podcast, we revel in getting caught up in that sort of stuff. Um, and at what point does the sort of strategic analysis yeah. just hit the wall of psychology and personality? Do you just look at Putin and think, well, you know, because you don't want to sort of fall back into the sort of great man of history trap, but actually at some stage, Putin's personality and what goes on in his head is such an instrumental part of this. I mean, one thing is true is, is that when I started planning this book, and when I had the first had the idea of it, I actually wanted to take the whole question of civilizational rhetoric in Europe and what that meant and what it meant in terms of the history of the formation of territorial states in, in, in Europe much more seriously than I ended up doing. I sort of basically been what would have been a fourth part um, of the book. And so one of my, in a way, frustrations um, about what I've presented in terms of what's now happened is on the one hand, the energy and geopolitical story looks quite vindicated. Um, on the other side, I don't think that an energy and geopolitical materialist, if you like, version of Russia uh, over the last 30 years will do as an explanation of where that we are, where we now are. And in one sense, I did understand that before presenting this book in the kind of structural way in which I um, did. The fact that Putin was a, a civilizational, if we can call it that, Russian nationalist who took the question of the Orthodox Church and its relationship to Russia's history, uh, took the split between the Ukrainian Orthodox Church and the Russian Orthodox Church in 2018 pretty seriously, clearly. I think that these were things that were um, evident in the way in which he presented to the world before this win the end of this winter. I think the fact that he started talking, though, in ways that were just so... I can't think of another way of describing it other than wanting to annihilate any idea of Ukrainian nationhood, simply to say that it's illegitimate and cannot exist in a way that's compatible as he sees it with Russia's interest. I think even if you took all that stuff seriously from prior to this year, that the moves that you've made this year are still quite difficult to explain. Now, where I'm at a loss still is, is do we explain this in terms of his psychology? And I, I have some interest in these questions in a, with a different hat on in the sense. And that something's happened to him, if you see what, that, that's destabilised his mind from the way in which he used to think about these things. Or is it actually the beliefs that he has about Russia and Russian history and Russian civilization and the threat that he conjures Ukrainian nationhood in relation to, to that have actually always been the things that have preoccupied him the most. I don't know. I don't really know how to think about that um, question. When I was in Russia and spending time there, the resistance of Russia, the Russian character, Russian history to modes of Western analysis was something that a lot of Russians took enormous pride in. You know, there's always there's this quote from the, this Russian poet, Tuchov, which says, I think it's, and you can't understand Russia with your mind. And that sort of reveling in irrationality, plus a, the sort of, there's this long history of, of collectivism that is seen as a sort of resistant to notions of liberal individualism, is sort of such a it's a deeply encoded part of Russian national identity and the Russian exceptionalism that it's hard to distinguish sort of what part of it is a, is sort of if you have someone like Putin who you would think is 
essentially cynically mobilizing an ideology because he's basically a you know sitting on top of us the pyramid of gangster capitalism uh, protecting his own interests and might have they might have just been intelligence failings that honestly made him think that ukraine had been captured by a, a sort of drug-addled neo-nazi junta and was about to collapse he seems to think some of that was true and it almost, I resist this idea that there's something intrinsically different about Russianness that means it's not subjective to those sorts of analysis because that's just buying into a sort of a myth of national exceptionalism. It is an, an awful lot of, I think, the, the way in which he, he dealt with the Ukraine situation in regard to energy and the way in which he dealt with European energy dependency as a weakness of European countries and the European Union. He did in a, a pretty systematic way, I would say. Uh, I think he knew what he knew. I think he knew exactly what he was doing in terms of getting to this moment and exposing and capitalising on European weakness from the energy sphere. It's just that question of does he actually have some beliefs deranged as they look to us, and are these what led him to miscalculate? So you know, one way to test this hypothesis is to just try it on another leader. So, you know, we, the way where there isn't all this sort of slightly mystic, mythic Russian stuff that I think pollutes the whole question. Mm. Um, and so, you know, on this podcast and also in the column that I write every other week about Boris Johnson, <laughs> um, I found, you know, it, 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 it turns into a kind of psychoanalysis of, of Boris Johnson's character just trying to analyse British politics. And I don't know if you found this on, on, on Talking Politics, you know, aside great podcast, uh, the Lennon McCartney of political podcasting, tragedy that's finished. But how could you avoid the vortex of the character of the man? And is it just flattering his vanity to even engage in that conversation when actually there are all these other strategic and economic and macro issues going on under the surface that are actually driving events, as your book analyzes so well? Yeah, I mean, I think that the hard thing with this comparison, obviously, is, is that Johnson's been in power for really a relatively short, you know, like period of time, and he will he will come and go. Maybe he will go quite quickly, maybe um, he won't, but he's never going to be in power as long as a man like Putin has been. I don't think that the way in which British politics works and in some sense the court drama of it on a often over quite sort of trivial things as we know really makes it easy to compare with somebody like Putin who whatever we think about him was playing on the world stage in a quite disruptive way over a period really now of 20 years. And I mean, if you just take, for instance, like how destabilising all his actions were in regard to the, the Middle East, particularly once Russia intervened in, in the Syrian war, but also he was quite consequential in a number of things that most of us might regard as positive, like securing the first Iranian um, nuclear um, deal. So in, in some sense, I think that Johnson's just a bit more peripheral to things even though he's a promise of our country. Um, yeah, on the, on the global front, I suppose the point I was, I'm getting at more is, so something like Brexit, mm -hmm. which, you know, obviously it is the expression of a number of, of cultural and historical and economic forces. And, and, and you describe particularly well in the book, you know, some of the, the missing or the ep less, less analysed bits of that, such as, you know, what happened around the failure to properly debate the Lisbon Treaty or to, you know, the fact that the position that the Conservatives got into around that. And yet I still find it hard to separate out, maybe just this a hindsight bias, um, what Brexit seemed to express about, you know, in terms of 
um, English nationalism and British nationhood and something that the personality and character of Boris Johnson seemed to represent as a leader who came along and, and said, you know, you can have your cake and eat it. And cakeism as both a doctrine of what Brexit could do for the country and cakeism as a function of, of the Johnson persona. I do think the question about the relationship between Brexit and Johnson is pretty interesting. Uh, and I would say, though, in one sense, he and Brexit went together because he was a risk taker. While there were clearly plenty of people in the Conservative Party who probably, if you'd asked them, had a sort of 50-50 view about whether you know, it would be desirable for you know, the United Kingdom to stay in the European Union, they were inclined to do the safer thing, which was to say, oh, we'll put up with the difficulties that, that Britain has because it will be too difficult um, to get out. And you, then you have somebody who's more, you know, uh, less averse to taking um, risks. And I think that Johnson absolutely fits into that. Um, category and is in some sense he's more willing to to roll the dice and he's more willing to shall we say be casual with words in the way in which he's making his case to the you're allowed to call him a liar I do all the time I think <laughs> on the other hand I would say if you look at his behaviour between the uh, referendum result um, and the point in which Theresa May's government clearly was going to end so after the the European Parliament elections and so it is got not nine percent of the vote. He didn't really take any risks. No, he didn't. He wasn't willing to put his career on the line um, over when the backstop agree, you know, appeared in the preliminary um, agreement. He only resigned after David Davis resigned. He was given, I think, that the 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 opportunity in part, I think, actually by the amount of uh, hatred that people on the intense Remain side came to to feel for Johnson, and so as he was hated by the intense Remainers, he became a symbol of something for Leave voters, regardless of whether they liked him or not um, in the in the first place. So I see actually, a, a, in the end, a lot more of Johnson's just endless improvisation in his psychology as leader of the Conservative Party or aspiring leader of the Conservative Party in regard to um, Brexit. I actually think the risk-taking aspect of his personality has come out much more over the over party gate and that sense he seems to have that rules simply don't apply to him even when he makes them himself. I suppose that's one of the things that continuity remain would find despicable about him and would connect to the wider sort of populist event moment that happened from 2016 onwards. I'm a little bit sceptical about this. You know, you know, there are people who will say, actually, you see shades of Viktor Orban in Boris Johnson, or there was this sort of sibling relationship between Brexit and Trump. And I'm not entirely, it doesn't quite work for me, but you can see why you know, what's left of, of Remain politics in Britain sees that party gate thing as a, on a continuum with a general unravelling of the rule of law and the sort of post-war liberal order. Are those dots that can be joined? Well, as you know, I'm quite, I'm quite sceptical about the, the Trump-Johnson um, one. I mean, a jo- Trump-Brexit, really, and then obviously it becomes trump um, Johnson. If we just look at it in terms of the the, the two personalities, I mean, Johnson was a you know, a career politician in the Conservative Party. He was one of a group of people who wanted to be leader of the Conservative Party and be um, Prime Minister. He wasn't a sort of strange mix of businessman, reality star, TV who who came out of nowhere, never run for office before, and and managed having spent scarcely any money in the primaries to become president of the you know United States, or in this case, um, Prime Minister of. Um, Britain and, and, I, and I do think that Trump's complete outsider position is an important part of explaining uh, the short-term circumstances around his um, election. I think that the 
the rule of law one, I'm more skeptical about. I mean, aside from anything else, is is just that I think that the questions about what law was at stake during the course of Brexit, and obviously the one that particularly comes into it is the proroguing of Parliament issue, doesn't seem to me to be really comparable with the the laws about um, lockdowns and social um, gatherings, not least because at the point before the Constitutional Court made that decision, there wasn't any sense in which the program of Parliament actually was illegal. It became illegal by the act of the court um, itself. It wasn't something that was a known. And then people broke that law. The law was established by the decision of the court. So I, I don't think that that comparison really works. And I think that... as so the interesting thing to me is is the way in which you could not have had a worse thing, I think, for Johnson's psychology than a situation where he had to make those kind of rules about daily life, in some sense about hourly life, and then that he had to stick to them. Because that seemed to me, seems to me, and from the outside, to be a complete anathema to every psychological instinct in him. Well, yeah, I think, I mean, this is something that I think is, is commonly, there's a sort of a category error commonly made here, which is that people will say that Boris Johnson, to the extent that he has any underlying creed at all, it is liberal or libertarian. And, you know, there's, there's obviously there's some grey area between those. And I think the, mis- the the missing bit of that is actually it's just libertine. <laughs> yeah. he just, essentially, he understands liberalism in terms of his entitlement to do whatever he wants. Well, I, I think I slightly disagree with you on, on two things you said that I mean I, I'm, I'm I've I also am very torn on the the Johnson Trump Brexit thing because obviously the US and the UK there's such different political cultures different political histories Brexit was was in many ways brewing more or less from from the moment of accession for all sorts of of, of complicated reasons but I think the celebrity thing is interesting because actually in his own way you know Boris, there's a case I think you could make, which is that Boris Johnson reflected a type of celebrity culture that is indigenous to Britain. Mm. You know, the panel shows, the sort of the bumbling toff type. There was a a figure that he represented that was sort of an outsider within the weird cultural apparatus of, of Britain's deferential society that actually was a British equivalent to the thing that Trump was, which was more brash and more about kind of stadium rocking celebrity. And so... You know, in the same way that Johnson's sort of speech patterns are, you know, he uses deliberately very long words and he, you know, he, he, he performs a certain type of role. Actually, that's that's the, a British equivalent to the sort of Trump deliberately speaking like a kind of a, a stand up comic and, and in one syllable words. Yeah. Do you see what I mean? That there is somehow, you know, it, they, they are there are just different brands, different flavours of actually quite a similar product. I see what you mean. I do. I mean. They obviously were both trying to be comedians in some sense. I think, though, there is. A, I still think there was a difference in that Trump was using his position inside the American political class, but as an outsider in it, i.e., in the sort of corporate political class, but not someone who was running for office, and obviously not somebody who was who who was liked um, at all um, by many of the most powerful people in the country who were um, repulsed by him he was using that position to sort of say i'll tell you the truth of how it really is i mean i'm not saying he was telling the truth of course i'm just saying he was he was trying to present himself as in some sense a a whistleblower on the corporate political um, class particularly i think the way he ran in the primaries uh, and the way in which he really tried to make his points through 
suggesting that everybody else in the system was bought and he was a free man because you know he was spending his own money to run for um run for president and i just don't think there's anything that's sort of like that in johnson i mean i don't think there was anything in which he was really using his humor such as it is uh and using his position as a psychological outsider perhaps we um could say to to tap into that kind of anger and discontent with the what we might call um the system in that sense it was more it was just it was more indulgent and more in some sense more vain in a way i suppose than trump's even though trump is obviously a very vain person there was this thing of talking about westminster sort of in terms that americans have talked about washington for a long time but we don't actually have that anti-federal anti-center mm. tradition that that's quite as strong so that's different and also i think there was an extent to which actually you know whereas with trump the, the offer was very explicitly smashing everything up and 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 you know and causing mm. disruption part of the the, the sort of the the cleverness of the Johnson proposition was it contains enormous disruption within something very familiar. And actually it was almost, you know, what he offered, particularly in 2019, I think was, you know, was sort of mocking the panic of the Remainers who were saying, look, this is the, the, the most extraordinary upheaval. This is going to cause absolute mayhem. And Johnson's great gift was to be able to say, don't be ridiculous. How bad could it be if you're making me the prime minister? You know, come on, it's not any, and, and that's actually a very different proposition. Yeah, and I think as well, though, by the time we get to 2019, it's it's not really about that earlier Johnson. I mean, that isn't that doesn't look to me like an election that was won by Johnson's personality in the way in which I would say his personality was important to his ability to beat Livingston in those mayoral elections in, in London. And you, I think in retrospect, we can see that even more clearly because we can see what a strong, what a Labour stronghold London is is and it's actually quite remarkable that Johnson won those two elections. I'm only saying, putting a caveat in because I think that Livingston had um, obvious um, weaknesses. But it seemed to me in 2019 um, general election, it wasn't so much about Johnson. It was about a group of a fairly large coalition of voters who on two counts on Corbyn and on Brexit just were insisting that they weren't having it. They weren't having Brexit cancelled and they weren't having Jeremy Corbyn as Prime Minister. And quite often that they were the same kinds of voters, though obviously um, not always. And in one sense, I don't think it made a great deal of difference what the Conservatives did or what Boris Johnson said during that 2019 election campaign. I don't think he used his personality anywhere near as effectively as he'd done, as I say, when he was running for mayor. Even, in fact, I'd say certainly during the referendum campaign itself, it was kind of, in some sense, I think, beyond the politicians in 2019. Yeah, on that, I definitely agree with you. And I think it's very interesting, sort of under, under observed that actually the idea that Boris Johnson has this extraordinary charismatic power and that was the thing that gave them the 80 seat majority mm -hmm. is is a is a myth in which the left has actually been complicit because it's much easier to believe that than to think Jeremy Corbyn was just a total calamity for the Labour Party, the worst possible choice of leader and actually more responsible for the 80 seat Tory majority than Boris Johnson. So actually you know, it, it, it becomes in the interest of the Labour Party to inflate the, the charismatic dimension of 2019. Yeah, it does on both counts. I think that is, is there's a one part of the party obviously that doesn't want to face what a calamity didn't want to face what a calamity Corbyn was, and there's another part of the party that didn't want to face what a calamity a second referendum was. Remain, yeah, and, absolutely. And saying, oh, there's something you know, um, charismatic or 
particularly morally reprehensible about this man, Boris Johnson, that explains it all, um, has its conveniences. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. I want to come back to something we sort of skimmed across a moment ago, which was the way that Remain as an identity only really coalesced both, you know, whether you think of it as a culture war tribe or, or something else, but as something, a profound identity force in British politics after June the 23rd, um, mm. 2016. It, it, it was the defeat that did that. And the reason I'm fascinated by that is because, you know, once just coming back to something you, know, you write about in the book, this basic tension between the sort of the Europe in the European project, which is almost successful in representing a pan-European identity that could sort of rival national, national allegiance and national identity, um, but not quite. Mm. And, but nor is it just another international institution. You know, it, it's not the IMF with a flag, right? It's, it's, it, so it sort of falls between those two stools. Well, there's so many places that we could take that. But, you know, for example, does the Ukraine situation animate that in a way that where you can see it evolving more in the direction of something, an, an actual identity that has mobilising power? It's really interesting that these moments of crisis, and I'm not trying to suggest for a moment that the crisis of the referendum and the crisis of the war in the Ukraine are the the same thing but that they clearly quite quickly can change people's sense of, of of who they are if you look at you know britain even i would say during the referendum campaign but certainly before you know it started i don't think there was a great deal of difference between the views probably of i mean i would guessing a percentage between 70 and 80 percent maybe 70 percent of um, voters is that they were people used to describe as eurosceptic there would have been different degrees of Euroscepticism, but that once enough people came down on one side or the other of that during the refer- referendum campaign, they became committed to a, a much stronger position. I think that m- than many people had started on both um, sides. And what we can see in 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 Ukraine is is that a country that was much more divided about questions about joining the European Union and NATO, there were suddenly much bigger majorities um, for those. Positions in in that sense, the terribly destructive thing that Putin has done from his point of view, from Russia's point of view, is to invigorate the very thing that he wanted to destroy, which was Ukrainian nationhood. And actually, Ukrainian nationhood is in a clearer state in the sense of more people clearly identify with it and may prepared to make you know, enormous sacrifices for that and the idea that they should be an independent state because they are the Ukrainian um, people. That's a lot stronger sentiment. It's created by the very act of the war. It's really created by the idiocy in that sense of what Putin has done in his, in his own terms. So I think in these times of crises of different kinds, and say, I, I don't want to get into making making the comparison sound superficial, is, is that people find out who they are in a political sense. And I think one of the things that was true about that end of history complacency, if we're going to call it that, is, is lots of us, and I wouldn't exclude myself from, from this, didn't understand the impact that politics could have on our lives, didn't have a sense uh, of 
we'd kind of taken what the Swiss political writer Benjamin Constant said was like a taste for modern liberty, living our lives on our own um, terms and not having to think about politics too much. He did say when the reckoning came, you would have to think about it a lot. That is part of the story of the the, the political turbulence of the last seven or eight years. Well, and certainly part of the story of how disoriented people feel by that political turbulence. I was just thinking about this a moment ago, how that feeling that you could be a, a sort of a passive Democrat or an episodic Democrat, mm -hmm. you turn out at election time uh, and, you know, it's like the whale that sort of breaches the surface, blows some water in the air and you see it and ooh and ah, and that's the election and it disappears under the water and you don't have to think about it for another four years. And it's just sort of, as long as there's enough plankton in the water, then democracy is fine. Yeah. And yeah, I think that was very much the, you look at the turnouts in those you know, 2001, 2005 elections, you look at the, yeah, there were all sorts of reasons why people weren't voting in that period, but we thought it was a normal condition to not have to engage with politics that much. Actually, it was a tremendous luxury. Hmm. And the, 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 the level of engagement that politics has sort of forced on us now relentlessly since 2016 might, you know, feels like a, an affront, or it certainly does feel like an affront to those of us who got used to 1996 to, to sort of 2010. I mean, I think we should also recognise that, that different people have different experiences of this. I mean, I think it's the, you know, it's middle class professionals, perhaps in particular, who've had this kind of sense of what we could, we could get on with our lives in a in a relatively unpolitical um, way. We weren't the losers of politics during those complacent years that we've um, been um, talking about. And then from 2016 found that uh, a lot of people found of this class of people that things weren't going their way and they weren't going their way over things about which they cared very, turned out that they cared very, very deeply. And that then I think involved a considerable psychological adjustment to living with politics and as a as a daily part of you know of our lives, and I think that was particularly true in, in the United Kingdom in 2019, when all those votes were going on in Parliament, and just the sheer you know exhaustion of it, of the sense of actually not knowing what was going to happen. That point about class is tremendously important, though, isn't it? I mean, I think in terms of you know long arc of change. That it was things that you know, if, you, if we're trying to sort of zoom out and think, what are the the, the macro differences? You know, will the failure of the American dream, the British promise, the, however it's configured in different countries and different cultures, that however badly things might be going, you have some underlying sense that your children will probably have a better paid job and live in a nicer house than you grew up in, is mm. appears to now be over it was over just because of wage stagnation then you throw in sort of a climate crisis and some of the sacrifices that are going to have to be made to adapt to that um is that you know there are so many big things going on it, it strikes me that that's got to be you know it, it certainly that's the sort of manchester city or the liverpool of macro changes that are fundamentally changing the parameters of politics over the last couple of decades yeah, I mean, I think there's an interesting comparison here, like with the 70s, which I remember, you know, as a as a child. And I don't think that I grew up particularly, you know, um, as a child of the 70s with the sense that things were going to get better. I grew up with an idea that things had been sort of better in the 60s and it was a decade that I missed out on. Um, certainly, perhaps where, when I was a student, thinking back to the sort of you know, the, the, the cultural experiences of young people in the, the 60s. And I think that that kind of sense of optimism about the future isn't really there for much of the 80s either. I don't think it's sort of a way one could characterise sort of mid-1980s Thatcher's Britain, let's say when the miners' strike was 
um, going on. I do think it's a function of the middle part of the 1990s and not just the end of the Cold War because the I think that the wars in you know, in, in the former Yugoslavia were quite to the fore and there weren't things that people ignored. I think there was kind of a decade starting somewhere 95, 96 maybe that ran through to I would say like 2005 where this idea of of things getting better uh, in, at least in this country, uh, I think in the United States case, it's a bit more complicated, did take hold. And then it's since then that there's been a, a shattering of that. But it raises the interesting question of, well, there's plenty of people alive now who've lived through the experience before of things being pretty tough of the kind that they were in the 70s and where we may be now heading again. Now, I think the interesting feature in terms of the politics of individuals in relation to this for us now is the millennial generation because they, they were in their more formative years partake of the optimism. But as soon as they reached adulthood, that was around the crash 2007-2008. And so that their entire experience of adult life has been of the difficulties that their generation um, faced. And what it does when you have, a, if you like, a, a childhood and teenage years where the optimism is the norm and then you start your adult life where it just seems harder and harder and harder all the time i think that that, that i think that's quite difficult psychologically but also i think it's going it, to i think well i think we can already see that it's having political consequences that mean that their political attitudes are going to be quite different and not in a way that can be generalised when we look at what's happening in France with the way in which, you know, that Marine Le Pen uh, did disproportionately well amongst young people. Yeah, I think if I'm to be self-critical about this, you know, as someone who graduated from university in 1996 mm. um, and then got a job in London that could, you know, with a for peppercorn rent, live in quite a nice flat in zone two and you know all the rest of it just absolutely surfed the the, the peace dividend of post-cold war you know i mean it feels like this sort of lost atlantis now deep under the waters of everything that's happened subsequently but exactly in that sweet spot that you described a moment ago and i think when we got to 2016 or 2015 jeremy corbyn chosen as leader of labor party brexit and for want of a better term the sort of, my, the sort of centrist dads had to process the fact that everything that we thought was sensible and good and right about politics had been rejected. It took us a long time, and we probably still haven't fully accepted, that what you've just described in terms of the, that millennial generation, why should they understand the investment that we had in, in Atlantis that's underwater? They never lived there, and they never got it. And they certainly didn't buy property there. <laughs> um, and so it's interesting, you know, when you talk about the sort of living through your teenage years, and, and that as a formative period, I think one of the extraordinary psychological things that is happening now in front of our eyes that probably we haven't really understood the political consequences of is if you don't get a fixed job or you're doing gig work and you don't own your property and you're, or you're having to live with your parents you're creating a whole new category of young adulthood in the same way that it was only really after in sort of the post-war period teenagehood was really mm. sort of developed as a cultural phenomenon you needed people to have a bit of money in their pockets you needed transistor radio so they could go off and listen to their rock and roll music in their rooms or in the car um you know there are all sorts of things that needed to happen in terms of affluence and technology and stuff that would enable a, a young 14 15 16 year old to suddenly be this cultural thing that was a teenager with pocket money who could support rock and roll and create a countercultural revolution and something of that demographic magnitude is happening to people now in their 20s, I think, or and even early 30s, because it, it, it's just 
the thing that society said people of that age should be doing isn't available to them anymore. No, absolutely, and and obviously it has, um, it, particularly it centres, I think, on the on the housing um, issue, but it very clearly has consequences for their ability to go on, have married, get married, have children, bring them up in the ways in which they were brought up themselves, um, with any kind of certainly in a in a, in a material um, sense. And part, at least in Western democracies, of the idea of the, in some sense, I suppose, the way in which Western democracies have stabilised themselves genera- generationally is is that younger people in their more rebellious days then get older, <laughs> they get into young adulthood, they they marry, they buy property, or enough of them do um, anyway. They have families in some sense that they become more conservative. I don't mean that necessarily in the party sense, but in the sense of of having some investment in society as it is continuing in the future. And if that changes, if the younger generation, millennials and those who come after them are not in a, enough of them in a position for that to happen, I think that that takes us into a pretty different, not just social and political space, but takes a pretty different cultural space, I think, as well. Now, I'm going to attempt a, a seg here into another thing I want to ask you about that might feel like a bit of a handbrake turn, but it is connected because <laughs> I do want to talk about, you know, uh, again, something that in disorder, I particularly like the last segment, probably won't surprise you to hear, on democracy and reform. And the idea, you know, we've talked a little bit about nationhood and we're, here we are talking about, you know, very fundamental cultural structural divisions between generations. We've talked about leavers, remainers. One of the things that, that comes across very strongly in your book is just the resilience of the nation state as the unit of, of sort of political solidarity by which you can organise a society and have a democracy historically. That's just a really potent thing and attempts to try and go supranational struggle, as we've seen with regard to the European Union, but also the sort of rational recognition that national myths are imagined communities. It's, a, it's mythological. You know, and there seems to be this paradox that I can't get past, which is to do democratic politics, you want to be rational and say, look, some of these things we tell ourselves about as nations are fictions. And this is historical revisionism that isn't true. But if you do that, you alienate people who believe that stuff and you can't basically conduct democratic politics that way. So do you see that tension there mm. between having to basically buy the fiction of the nation in order to do democratic politics, which feels dishonest if you see, the, see it as a fiction? Yeah, I, I think in lots of ways, though, that that is why the ability of governments to, or the political class to pursue some version of economic nationhood, um, in the American case, I'd say from the 1930s and the New Deal, Franklin Roosevelt's, um, presidency and then in the post-war decades in Western Europe was was pretty politically useful because in that sense you could do nationhood by trying to ensure that the state took responsibility for instance for full employment some sense of there being a national economy in which everybody had a stake in which the actual action that protected national economies and national currencies from being in some sense bashed around by international financial markets by the use of um, capital um, controls. That's a safer way of dealing with the nationhood question than having to engage full on with uh, we need to find ways of telling our national story and the way in which we talk about ourselves that will allow us to believe that we're part of imagined community and we'll have to do that knowing that it is fiction but it, that it is necessary because as we know the danger of, of trying to do that second thing is that when politicians find it too difficult that they slip off into nativism 
and they, they, they slip off into doing it into very restrictive ways. I don't think that they have to, but there's a clear historical danger that that is what that they do. One of the real calamities from the, going back to the sort of the complacency of the late 90s and the early noughties, was the loss of a moderate social democratic counterweight to for want of a better word, and it's a word I hate using, but it does describe a real thing, the kind of neoliberal no. um, model. Because I think what you what, what you were just saying a moment ago suggests you need a certain amount of centre-left egalitarianism to sustain the nation-state's legitimacy, so that everyone feels they're part of the same sort of sol political solidarity community, uh, and the kind of inequalities that got unleashed in that period, in, in the long boom, then kind of you know, had this knock-on effect where expressions of, of nationhood ended up coming out in, in more kind of culture warrior terms because we'd yeah. lost the purchase on a more civic uh, egalitarian model. No, I think so. And I don't think it even was just the question of uh, inequality, though. I think that that was part of it. It was both the language in which, say, a politician like Tony Blair talked about these things as if it was in Blair's terms absurd to think there was such a thing as a national economy because you know, he wanted to say that globalisation was like you know the seasons following on from um, each other and then in the case of the United States I think it's really compounded um, by the fact that the language of globalisation and the language of the need to adjust to the international economy and then international markets etc um, was used to talk away the distributional consequences for the United States of China's integration into the international trading um, order. And the people who were doing the, look, this isn't a distributional question, this is just going to make everybody better off. The people who were talking that language, they belong to, in some sense, the class of people, or at least they were the representatives of a class of, of people who were going to do very well out of that new international economy in which China was going to be integrated in on the terms in which it did. So I think it, it wasn't just the outcomes that were problematic. They really were problematic. It was the way in which politicians talked about it. And so that even if you were someone like Blair, who, 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 who might have said, OK, we need to be doing this from the centre left and not doing it from the, the centre right, he still didn't want to talk about it, economic life, in a way that seemed to have any idea, anything to do with a sense of political community. And I suppose the emblem of that would be the A10 accession from the EU uh, and the, the sort of Labour migration, which mm. you know, essentially the new Labour position on that was there's nothing to see here, it'll all be fine. Um, and which turned out to be, I, I think it was broadly fine, except that politically it was clearly turned out to be pretty disruptive. And I wonder whether you think there is just this fundamental kind of impasse where sort of basically political liberalism wants labor mobility and sort of nationhood wants control and, uh, over a stable identity or more a more stable identity than mass migration allows and and, and whether you see a way whether that is a, a sort of impasse and whether you see a way through that well i think in the case of the um accession of the a8 in countries in um 2004 it brings out the other tension that comes when any of these questions have got anything to do with the European Union, um, which is the difficulty of democratic politics getting any purchase on it. Because once it's agreed and it's in treaties, then it's essentially constitutionalised. It's not for elections in any member state to start opening up those treaties and to start saying we need to think about this 
Um, again, so you know, e- even if, say, within a few years, um, that Labour government had thought that that was a mistake, what it had decided about Eastern European accession and, uh, and freedom of movement, it wouldn't have been able to do anything about it. I think that, that when you then have a sense amongst certain people that they are the losers, and again, I'm not making judgment at the moment whether they are or whether the, that they aren't, and then they see that their national democratic politics can't respond to their perception that they are losers and a willingness that they want desire to articulate their their grievances or their unhappiness with the outcomes, then it just reinforces the idea that there's a class of people somewhere out there, so to speak, who are making the decisions, who are disconnected from them. So I don't think it even always just has to be the economic question. I think it quite quickly becomes the political question of who's getting to decide and other decisions taken by people who can be the voters in some sense representatives or is the authority and the power somewhere else i suppose what i what i was getting at there also though is you know, you, met, you said that you know, there could have been a, a, a section four a volume four to the book about sort of culture issues and and you decided that that was going to get too complicated mm-hmm. um and whether in that if you were to revisit it and do that whether the sort of the flow of people would be like the flow of oil and gas, mm. you know, as in just one of those big long-term things that is changing the, the, the sort of the geostrategic dynamics. You look at the sort of just a flow of people across the Mediterranean, uh, how that affects the cohesion of the European project. That's a decades-long challenge that is only starting. And, and I don't know whether, you know, I don't want to add more things for us to be worried about, but it seems to me that we, we don't, there's still, for those of us who, who want to think that there's some kind of a centre-left or liberal or social democratic rehabilitation might be available, the fact that all we've got is the hope that Macron beats Le Pen and then something turns up, that seems to be all we've got when you have these forces that are, are really... Um, sort of assailing the idea from all angles. So that's a far too big a question. But anyway, you understand what I'm saying. No, no, I, I, I think that I, I did actually want the movement of peoples to be part of the geopolitics story by the time it got to the 2010s and also in a different way, part of the, the democracy story by the time it got to the post the 90s, the 2000s. And I think that on the, the geopolitics side that there is a real difference between the disruption that flows out of the Syrian civil war and what's gone on with past problems in the Middle East. Past problems in the Middle East caused European countries all kinds of, of problems, not least obviously on the energy side, but they didn't until 2015 cause the, something like the refugee and migrant crisis and the difficulty European countries and the European Union um, itself had in um, dealing with that. And that is part of the, the future. I mean, climate change is also obviously going to be a, a driver um, of migration um, out of the Middle East and North Africa. And so I think that there isn't a way of pushing that question off somewhere and say it's too difficult for individual democracies or the European Union to deal with. We're, we're all going to have to face up um, to it. And we can see some of the politics of that playing out, obviously, in Britain at the moment. I think on the nationhood side, one of the reasons why nationhood is difficult, sustaining it over long periods of time, which democracies I think historically do require. One of the reasons why it's really difficult is is because who the citizens are change, who that they identify as being um, change over long periods of time. So you might do a very good job in, let's say, like late 1940s, early 1950s um, Britain, sustaining a particular idea of what 
perhaps not the United Kingdom, but Britain is as an imaginative political community. But as different people come and make their lives here and are disconnected from the historical stories that many politicians wanted to tell in the 50s and 60s, which were obviously in significant part bound up with the, the world wars. And once their historical experience is not that, then telling those stories about nationhood in ways that politically work was going to become more difficult. And you can see that really clearly in the United States. And in the United States, it's made even harder by the fact that the foundational story of the of the United States is now being, for very understandable reasons, you know, bitterly politically contested. So I think that nationhood is as destabilizing in that sense as it is necessary in that democratic politics has to find a way of dealing both with its necessity and with its dangers and trying to contain the dangers. Yeah, I'm, I'm very worried about the US in that sense that, you know, first of all, I think a lot of us from the outside didn't appreciate the how recent the Civil War was as in the sort of national consciousness as still a fault line that could be animated as a point of identity. Liliana Mason's book about sort of mega identities and the way that culture wars work in the US suggests you, you look at the sort of Trumpism and the red state, blue state division mm. starts to look very strongly like proto nations in development, you know, that this is actually a civil war in the making, and, you know, but with a very well armed population. That sounds potentially hysterical, but it's, it's quite a compelling case for actually how normalized political violence has become and how polarized those are as, as identities that you start to think the cohesion of the republic is properly in peril. I mean, I do think that there's, the cohesion of the republic is in peril in lots of ways, but I don't think that the civil war analogies really work, mainly because. That what you had in the case of the American Civil War, obviously, was that 11 states wanted to secede and that they weren't territorially next to each other and that, in principle, they had the capacity to form an independent um, state. I mean, in the end, obviously, they weren't militarily strong enough to do that and they were kept in the Union. But it's quite difficult, I think, to see that the divisions in the United States turning into something where you could have a parallel of 11 states or what some proportion of states that in principle could form a state declaring their independence um, from the United States. But it's pretty clear, and here I agree with you, is is that the long history of the American Republic is part of the divisions within American society that do have some destabilizing effect on the American Republic. And part of the divisions are coming from the competing stories about American nationhood that are being told. And in that sense, we can see, you know, the dangers of needing to have such imaginative historical stories in democratic politics. We've used up a lot of your time. Have you got a moment to, if I try and uh, bundle all the other things I wanted to ask you in one epic question, you could just pick yeah, out as much fine, as yeah, you want, fine. but there is, uh, because I think I can yeah. do another sort of handbrake turn here that, that, that takes us around this corner without just flying off the track completely. Um, on that point about the imperilment of the American Republic and therefore that sense of the West being possibly in decline as China catches up and rises and to what extent really there is actually some alternative model available there. Ultimately people I think still would rather live in a, in a liberal democracy than an authoritarian state and autocracy reason that refugees want to come to Europe and the UK is because it's just a better life. Uh, so there's still a pull factor to the idea of, of, of what Western civilization, for want of a better word, offers. And yet 
China's moment is coming and actually, particularly in the context of climate emergency and climate change, whether there is a case to be made that says in order to do the transition to a low carbon economy, you need a bit of eco-Bolshevism. You need a powerful state that's just going to tell people to make these changes because if you leave it up to, you know, democratic electorates, you're just going to have gilets jaunes movements all over the place where people go, I don't want to sacrifice my big car. No, not happening. China has certain advantages where the green energy revolution is concerned, but I'm not sure that they arise from its political system as such. I think they arise more from the fact thus far China has been able to dominate like solar panel manufacturing, it's been able to dominate rare earth, mineral and metal production. And on the second of those, that's got something to do with the distribution of those metals under the Earth, and it's got something to do perhaps with the willingness of the, the Chinese leadership, actually going back to the, the Mao era, to take this seriously. I don't think it's impossible for a politician in a democracy to take these resource issues seriously over a long period of time. I mean, when Franklin Roosevelt was cozying up to the Saudi king during the course of the, you know, the Second World War, the, the need for the United States to import significant quantities of oil from Saudi Arabia was 30 years away. So I think that where resource questions are concerned, that democracies can produce leaders to think that far ahead. So there isn't a problem of kind of decadent consumerism where in democracies we're just not up for the challenge, we're not up for the sacrifice that's required. You know, that, that's my concern, I suppose, what I was getting at was the sense of, you know, and I'm just in the, in the short term with you know, the war in Ukraine and the requirement possibly to sort of ration energy quite soon. Mm. I think if I were Vladimir Putin, I'd be sitting there thinking, yeah, yeah, they're, they've got their solidarity now and they're talking a good sanctions game, but wait until it gets cold again and they want to jack the heating up, they'll come begging. Um, and he might, I don't know, maybe he's right about that. I think it's he could be right in the sense of I think it's definitely very much open to question as to how much tolerance citizens of Western democracies have got for um, sacrifice. I think, though, that many more sacrifices were asked of people and many more were given during COVID than anybody would have thought possible beforehand. I'm also not really convinced that Chinese citizens are very keen on sacrifices either in the sense is, is that consumerism, certainly middle class consumerism is very much part of of China's society. Uh, Theirs is a political culture that still I would say is in more of a denial in some sense about limits than ours is. Well that's interesting. In some sense because we've had depending on how you want to look at it 30 or 50 years if you want to go back to the the 19th um, 70s of, of running into serious difficulties with growth, um, things not necessarily turning out as many people hoped, including those generational questions that we were talking about earlier. The story in China since Deng's reforms, at least, has been progress. It's been, you know, we can do this in terms of economic development and we can get richer all the time. Look how far we've come in this short period of time. That's extraordinary achievement, etc., etc. To try then, I think, to put the politics of sacrifice onto that is going to be at least as difficult, if not more, perhaps, than putting on the politics of sacrifice onto um, where we are in Western democracies, which in some sense have been more tethered by disappointments over the last, we can maybe wonder about over how long. Um, but I think that the the inevitability of progress narrative is probably weaker here now in Western democracies than it is in China. And in some sense, that's the the sacrifice, giving up on that is perhaps a sacrifice that's being asked. Which brings us neatly back to 
to sort of where we started, which is this question of how you know whether you're in an inflection point. It's something that we've discussed on this podcast before, this question of if you are confident that ultimately there is a, you know, the arc of history bends towards progress or justice, depending on how you, you use the quote, but it just sort of zigs and zags a bit, how you judge whether we're in a, a sort of a, a, a wobbly moment that just it feels like, you know, a bit like the 1970s or something more 1914 and 1939-ish. Um, and it's, it's very hard to know when you're in it. You know, reading the book, is it a pessimistic book? It's it certainly, it, it's shot through with this sense that you can't be confident that the foundations that of any th- given moment where things feel sort of stable and normal are secure and therefore the challenges ahead particularly with climate are so vast that you know you have to brace i think is probably the one word yeah i mean i i think that we are living through something that is actually pretty hard to compare with something else and i think that there's always a danger of always making that of making of ever making that kind of argument because it risks becoming oh you know we've just got it more difficult or we've got more opportunities than any group of people who've ever been alive on the planet and before um we're different and i think that there's so many ways in which that that um isn't true um, and i think there's much more of a, a continuous history in a number of ways but only in a number of ways between people living in the modern world and people living before the modern world more than we would care to dwell on but and i will put a button here i do think that what we're trying to do in terms of the energy revolution is very hard to find a comparison with it isn't like the 1970s in this respect because in the 1970s there were lots of energy problems but at the heart of them was simply that there was a geopolitical shift going on in which Western countries and particularly European countries were losing power um, to um, the countries in the Middle East and in different ways to countries uh, in um, Asia. Um, There wasn't actually a physical shortage of any of the major sources of energy. And although there was some talk about trying to use less energy uh, and trying to um, move to nuclear and solar panels, etc., there wasn't attempt to try to revolutionise the entire energy system which is what we're trying to do over the next 30 years. And if we think about it in terms of what that energy you know, revolution entails is, is that it entails using nuclear accepted, less dense energy rather than a higher density um, energy. And every energy transition that's taken place before has gone in the opposite direction from lower density energy to higher density um, energy. So this, it seems to me, is a, re- is a really singular moment and uh, my view in terms of how we can be optimistic or have some optimism about that is to be realistic about it i know that sometimes realism and pessimism are, are, are put together but i think the danger um with not being relatively realistic at least um about what lies uh, ahead is is we just bury our heads in the sand and what is necessary is is being realistic and and still having in some sense, the, the the optimism, the faith um, that the future can be faced. If we're trying to be optimistic about the availability of a transition to a you know, 
essentially a post-carbon economy, it brings us right back to some of the things we were discussing earlier about, well, just about political leadership and about how you bring a, a democratic population along with you. And, you know, we were talking about the deficiencies of Trump and Johnson and their characters in different ways. And what would be required of political leadership, you know, and working with the institutions that we have that are flawed and all the rest of it, to make a liberal democracy like the UK as it is now, do what is necessary to get us through that transition? I think that we need two things probably that are in some tension with each other, but I don't think they have to be incompatible with each other. I think that we, meaning the citizens in some sense, have to take energy issues much, much more seriously. And we have to have actually democratic political contest about how to achieve zero 2050. At the moment, it's a goal in which there are a number of possible ways forward, but the actual discussion about which of those might be the best way or the least hazardous way might be the better way of putting it forward isn't actually happening. We haven't seen much contest about net zero. Now, obviously, the danger we're saying you want to open up it to democratic politics is, is then the target itself becomes contested and it becomes open to climate change deniers. And that's not that that's not going to help us at all. So I think there has to be some sense in which those who participate in, in politics in terms of the parties and party leaders and senior people have to sort of set some, if you like, parameters for that democratic political discussion based, I would hope, on a reasonable amount of honesty about the, the choices that, that lie ahead. In this sense, I think the 70s is a good comparison. I think if you go back to the 70s, it is quite striking, the willingness of politicians and not just Jimmy Carter, though he probably does it more than anybody um, else, to talk relatively openly, directly, honestly about the energy choices that have to be made to deal with the the crisis of the, the 1970s. Now, in some sense, I think that the wrong lessons were then learnt out of it became, oh, it's also politically difficult, is we just must sort of in some sense, depoliticize energy questions because people start voters start associating it with sitting around in the dark and energy being um, short, short. But that question of like, what are we going to do when energy is very expensive? Markets will price the poorest people in this country out of energy consumption has to be part of the the political debate. And when we're doing that, we'll be going forward when we're not prepared to face those questions because we just think that they're too difficult and politicians worry that their ways of basically ending their political careers, then I don't think we're going to get we're going to get anywhere. A case that some of us were trying to make a long time ago, which is that hydrocarbon dependency helps a, a tyrant like Vladimir Putin and mm. renewables you know, breaks that connection that's now a mainstream argument yeah. whereas it was seemed kind of weirdly whimsical and and sort of slightly off-piste way of making the case uh, really not that long ago um and actually to say you know turn the heating down because you know otherwise you're doing vladimir putin a favor is almost more compelling than the sort of because in 50 years time there won't be any insects left you know as a sort of as an argument well i, ju- I just think that that issue of being able to talk about energy consumption which I think has been treated as something like a political taboo, has as a consequence of this war, tragically, stopped being. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Taboo. 
not only is it not taboo that enough people across European countries have got some sense that they would make a sacrifice where energy consumption is concerned in order to stand on Ukraine's side during this um, war. And I can tell the change in terms of the willingness of people to talk about energy from the ways in which people respond when I talk about energy. And I, I was started talking about energy on and off and talking politics not right from the beginning, but, you know, like relatively early on. And I didn't particularly think I got any real traction from doing so. But things have been very different trying to talk about energy in the last six weeks, even than they were last autumn, when I would say that there was a growing sense that there were energy problems is, is I don't think we're going to go back to being complacent about energy questions and not seeing that they have geopolitical consequences. And that if you do as a country, make yourself dependent on a country like Russia, led by someone like Vladimir Putin, that that is going to cost people lives. That seems like a fitting place to end. Uh, well, we're out of time anyway, but it's not the most upbeat melody to finish on, I suppose. But I think I think there's a positive dimension to this, the galvanising force that the, the crisis can have. And, and as you suggest, perhaps there is hope now that even if we're still deep in an age of disorder, we might be leaving behind the age of complacency. Disorder, by the way is the title of Helen's book. You see what I did there. Uh, do go and read it, buy it and read it. All that's left is for me to say thank you, Helen, for being my guest on the podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure, Ralph. Also, thank you, Philip Berman, the producer of Politics on the Couch. And thank you, listeners, for listening and sharing. Do please share the podcast if you like it. And thank you, Dog, for being quiet for the second half of the podcast. Um, now I have to go and feed you and maybe take you for a walk. Goodbye, everyone. <laughs>